Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rather than trying to back up what we already believe, going to the Bible to try to find evidence for what we believe, we want to find out what the Bible says. This will help us to have ownership in the things that we believe and also help us to be able to defend it. So we take questions from you through the comment section below. If you're on YouTube or you're on Facebook and you would like to join us, uh, that by, by you'd like to ask a question, then just write the word question out and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense and says what you wanted to say, and then go ahead and submit it. Uh, for the next hour, we will be taking questions. Now, our first question today was one that was left before uh, our on our last Q&A. It was left near the end of it uh, about, about the kingdoms of this world, um, about whether or not Satan is in control. Remember when Satan was tempting Jesus that he said, and they took him to a high mountain and showed him all the, the kingdoms in their glory and said, all of these I will give to you. I have the authority to be able to do that. And Jesus didn't fight against it. So the question is, is Satan head over the kingdoms of the world today? So in, we, we find maybe the first uh, part we find the first place that we find a quest, the answer to this question is in the book of Revelation. In chapters four and five, you have this heavenly vision and you have the one sitting on the throne who is the Ancient of Days and he has in his hand a scroll. Now, people differ between what that scroll is. Some say it's the title deed to the earth. Others say it's a judgment scroll because when it's open, judgments come forth in the book of Revelation. Others say it's a redemption scroll because the one of the 24 elders say to John, don't weep because the Lamb of God has prevailed and redeemed the world with his blood. And so they say that's a redemption scroll that he has the right to be able to open and he's redeeming the world. Well, when you get to the end of the scroll being opened, which is in Revelation 11, I wanna show you this, which is in Revelation 11, uh, you have all seven seals opened up. And when the seventh seal is opened up, then you have the trumpet judgments that take place out of the seven seals. And then the final trumpet is, bl is blasted, the seventh one, in Revelation 11. And here's what it says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So once the scroll is completely opened, the kingdoms of this world that were in the control of Satan are now in control of God. That's what we see. So yes, it is the title deed of the earth, and it is a redemption scroll because the title deed was gained by the redeeming of the lamb. And it is a judgment scroll because judgments come through that. But a couple of other things that help us understand how the, how the world got in this place where the the devil was in control of the title deed we think comes from this so here in galatians uh, 128 it says then god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and have and subdue uh, be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth so they are created to have dominion, which is to have authority. We'll see in a moment, Satan talks about having authority. And they have the kingdoms of the world. And probably, well, we think through the fall that 
the kingdoms of the world were delivered from mankind into the hands of Satan. So here's Luke 4, 5 through 7, where it says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. So see the kingdoms of the world. So he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And then back in Revelation 11, when the final trumpet is blasted, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So yes, we do believe that Satan is in control of the world today. The Bible calls him the God of this world. And so we do believe that, and we do believe that it is God who will finally um, overtake them. So we have a new version of Ecamm Live, which is what we use to stream through. And uh, things look a little bit different here, and perhaps they'll work just the same. We'll see. I no longer can tell if it's coming from Facebook or from YouTube. Uh, that's fine. But I do uh, see you guys here. And if you have a question, then you can just write the word question in front of it. Write out your question. Make sure it makes sense. And then go ahead and submit it. And we'll take time to take your question. So our first question comes from Kara. And Kara says, in Genesis 4, when Cain killed Abel, did God make Cain an escape person, an escape person who will set out in the wilderness to take the sins? So you're saying like the scapegoat, right? Like, okay, like the escape goat in sacrifices. Not sure how to, uh, to really word. Yeah, I get, I get it. So is, is Cain a scape person? So you had two goats, one of them was sacrificed and one was taken out in the wilderness and was let go. And that was called the scapegoat, which, which went out bearing the sins. Um, I would... I always want, I always hesitant to talk about things that I haven't thought about. So I've never thought about Cain being a scape person and that the scapegoat being a type of Cain. Um, my first inclination almost always when I, when I get something, unless there's something really clear, is for me to say, I don't think so. That's always my, my the kind of my go-to, right? I'm skeptical by nature. And I find myself often saying, you know, it takes me a while to really begin to, 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 to think things through and to see whether or not that is the case. And so just trying to think it through now and give a thoughtful answer to this, uh, I'm going to say, I don't know. I'd like to take more time to be able to look into it. Um, I've got to look, go back and look at what is the purpose of the scapegoat. So we have the, the animal that is sacrificed and killed for the sins. You have them laying their hands on the scapegoat, and then the scapegoat goes out into the wilderness and is never seen again, presumably dies out there. And um, it's been a long time since I've covered that. And so I think I'm just going to have to take a pass. Sorry about that. I always hate when, I, when I'm not able to come up with it, but I'd rather do that than say something that I don't know. I think it's an interesting thought and I can't think of a, a, a reason why or why not that would be the case. All right, Cara, so good stuff. I appreciate your question. 
We have a question from um, Andre. Andre, good to see you. Andre says, Jesus knew everything that he would go through to save us. So why did he say, if instead of when, in John 12, 32? Two verses later, he quoted the saying, must be lifted up. All right, well, let's take a look at that, Andre. Thank you for sharing that. Let me go ahead and get the Bible up here and go to John 12, 32. John 12, 32. 12 and 32. All right, so um, Jesus, if Jesus knew everything that he would go through to save us, so why did he say if instead of when? All right, so we're looking at this. John 12, 32, uh, it says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Then he said, this he says, signifying by what death he would die. All right, um, so let's just, let's do this. Let me um, go ahead and put this up on the screen. And I want to look at a couple of different versions here and see if it helps us out. So let's go to um, the NASB. And let's see what they how they put it. And if I am lifted up from the earth, let's go to the NIV, see how they put it. And I win, and I win am lifted up from the earth. So they take the word if out of there. So I'm wondering what's happening in the King James Bible and why they're using the word if and when. Um, there's another passage that is like this. Let me get uh, back to my there's another passage that's like this, and it is in John 14, 1. And here again, he's talking about something that's a surety. Let me get back to the New King James Version. All right. Um, so it says here, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, so here it's the same kind of phrasing. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's a statement by him. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So he's just opposing those two things. I'm going to come again if I go and prepare a place for you. And so the if there is used in an interesting way. I remember my oldest son uh, reading this with me and saying, I don't get why it says if because of the way that we use the word if. So I'm just interested in what the NIV says here. So the NIV says of this passage, um, let's see, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take it with me. So I'm going to say, uh, Andre, that this is, I'm going to say, Andre, that this is a, um, that this is the way that the wording is done and that the word if there means when. Uh, it's kind of like, if the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, then he's going to draw people unto himself. So he is saying when the Son of Man is lifted up. But he's saying, if the Son of Man is lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. I'm going to just take one more look at that and make sure that I'm saying that correctly. But I think that's what's going on there. 1232, I'll read it again. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we need to go back to the New King James before I show it to you. All right. And then let me go ahead and put this back on the screen here and we'll read it together. Um, and if I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. So I think he's using it the same exact way that he's using it in John 14, where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So he's saying, if the son of man is lifted up, then he will, um, let's see, if the son of man is, is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all peoples to himself. So we now know the son of man was lifted from, to, up from the earth. And so he will draw all people to himself. So he's using it as a statement. If this comes to pass, then you know this is true. If, if I'm lifted up from the earth, then this is going to happen. And since we know he was lifted up to the, from the earth, he's going to draw all people to himself. All right? Um, Andre, hopefully that answers that question. If, um, and I'm glad we kind of worked through that because we can see it here now. And if you have a follow-up, Andre, I'd love to be able to uh, look at that with you. All right? So, um, Psychman, good to see you. Good to have you back, by the way. Psychman says, when you read, read baptism and say it, could mean immersion in the spirit, something like this, could it be that you are reading a passage referring to spiritual baptism John mentions early on? Yes, I do. So the New Testament uses the word baptism several times, and it doesn't always use it to mean water baptism. So the word baptism means immersion. That's what it means. It means to be dunked in, right? So well, we believe in baptism by immersion. That's what, what we believe in Calvary, in Calvary Tucson. I don't think it's a matter of salvation. If you are, if someone is poured on rather than sprinkled on, we had a question about this uh, not that long ago. I was trying to find my Strong's Concordance here. There it is. Uh, so, um, so I'm thinking about what passage I want to go to here. Um, Okay, so let's just, let's just think about it this way, psych man. So the Bible says we were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And there are those that want to read that as water baptism, but it's not. We are baptized into the body of Christ. So we are immersed in the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. And um, I, I, I wish I could think of, let me see if there's, I can think of a passage where it talks about baptism. So, um, I just can't think of one off the top of my head to get to it, to look at, uh, to look at the Strong's Concordance for baptism. But baptism means immersion. And yes, I think he's referring to the, the spiritual baptism or can refer to that. It can refer to water baptism for sure, but it can also refer to being immersed in something, anything else. It's just like the word immersion today. All right, psych man, thanks for bringing that up. Um, if you have a follow-up, um, maybe you can find a, a passage where we can look up baptism. I think um, that would be great. Um, so Rod asked the question, um, was the crucifixion above Jeremiah's grotto? So this is, I believe, a question about the Holy Sepulcher and whether or not the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is on top of the place that Jesus was crucified. There's also a place in Jerusalem called Gordon's Calvary. And if you stand at a certain place, you can see the top of a hill that has the eyes of a skull in it. And they have a picture from, I don't know, the late 1800s that has um, the, the full hill and it, and it looks like a skull on it. And, and this garden tomb was found very close to Gordon's Hill. And so Gordon's Calvary is, um, is by some thought to be there. Now, we always take 
groups when we go to Jerusalem to Gordon's Calvary um, because it doesn't have all the hustle and bustle. No church has been built on it. We're able to enter into a garden. There's a tomb there, like the first century tomb. Uh, is it most likely Jesus's tomb? Probably not. And the reason that we think that is because when Constantine went to go and look for the place that Jesus was crucified, Constantine's mother did it, as far as I understand, that they had built a temple, a pagan temple on top of it because they had heard that that's the place where Jesus was crucified. And so when Christianity was illegal, uh, the, the Romans had built a temple on top of it. They tore the temple off of it and they did find a tomb and they did find a, a, a place where they think that Jesus could have been crucified. And so that providence, much closer to the time that it happened, would tell us that that most likely is the spot. That doesn't mean for sure that it is, but it means most likely it is. Yeah, could it be Gordon's Calvary? Maybe. There are people who believe that, um, but most scholars think it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I assume that's Jeremiah's Grotto. And by the way, Rod, if, I, if I'm mistaken, and it's not Jeremiah's Grotto, isn't the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, isn't in there. So when you go in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's all very, in a very close location where they have where they, they believe Jesus was crucified and where his tomb was. And there is a tomb there that this church was, that this um, pagan temple was built on top of with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So if I'm wrong, Rod, and uh, Jeremiah's Grotto is not um, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, would you let me know so I can correct that? All right. Um, so fact check these questions. Uh, fact, check these fact check these hands has a question. We're going to fact check my, my answer to this question. Question. Um, along with many others around the world, have noticed strange things in the sky, sun, moon, rising in weird places, weird clouds, etc. Could these be signs of the last days? Um, uh, I, along with others around the world, have noticed strange things in the skies. Well, we're told that there are going to be signs in the skies in the last days. Uh, are, are these signs in the skies anything that can be um, verified? Again, fact check these hands. I'm, I'm a little skeptical almost always. And so if someone were to tell me I saw this strange thing in the sky, I'm not going to say that it didn't happen, but sometimes we see things that we're not really sure what it is and that it seems to be something else. I have not heard of the sun or the moon rising in weird places um, or weird clouds. I mean, clouds can be weird, you know, right? They can do different things. And um, <clears throat> so I'm going to, I'm just going to say, I don't think so. And if there is any, if there's been any scholarly work done on the sun and the moon rising in weird places, or any verification of that. So the sun and the moon track pretty much the same all the time. And um, so much so that they can map it out into the future. So if something gets out of sync and it's coming up in a place that it shouldn't come up, then we would know that. We, we would be able to, to look at that. So I don't think that's the case. Fact check these hands, all right? Um, and so we have a question from Josiah. And Josiah, good to see you. Good to have you here. Says, um, if I was traumatized and I went to die, but alcohol makes me not feel the way, wouldn't he want me to feel like that? So you're saying 
if you're traumatized and want to die, but alcohol makes me not feel that way, wouldn't he want me to feel like that? So I think that there is a, a fallacy here, Josiah, and that's the either or fallacy that you're saying, I'm, I'm either feeling like I'm going to die, I want to die, but when I drink alcohol, I don't feel like I want to die. And so those are my only two options, walking around feeling like I want to die or drinking alcohol and not feeling like I want to die. When I think there's other options besides that. I think that there, are, there you, you need to get some help, that you don't try to handle this just on your own. Um, Oh, let me go ahead and get your question back up here. Well, Josiah, let me just let me just say, I think that those are not your only two options. And even though alcohol might cover whatever you're feeling, what whatever you're feeling is there for a reason. Who knows why or who knows for what? But when you start to feel the buzz of alcohol or you're drinking alcohol and it changes your reality so you're not affected by that anymore, um, I think that you should probably talk with a, a good Christian psychologist, clinical psychologist, someone who sees people and talks them through because there are other ways to handle things um, than just alcohol. Now, <clears throat> what you don't give me is a lot of information in here. So you don't say, if I was, um, if I was traumatized and wanted to die, but alcohol makes me not feel that way, would he want me not to feel that way, like that? Well, it depends. I mean, is it one drink a day? Is it that you, you know, sit down for lunch and, and have maybe one or two beers, then you don't feel that way, but you're not getting drunk? Then could alcohol be used to self-medicate and make you feel better and be able to cope with life? I still think you're masking something, but... Remember, the Bible doesn't ever say not to have a drink, but the Bible definitely says don't get drunk. And so if you're saying getting drunk makes me not feel that way, then I'm going to say you're going to have to come to a place here, Josiah, where you trust God, where you believe God, where you have a point of faith. Because the Bible says don't be drunk with wine because that's dissipation. It lets down your guard. You end up saying and doing things you wouldn't normally say. So God doesn't want you drunk because of that. And so if you're saying that's the only way that I can cope with things, then I've got to believe God's word, that God gives us a sound mind, that God can reach out and, and move in your life and that there's other ways to deal with it. And I would say talking with a clinical, a Christian clinical psychologist talking with a pastor who has has dealt with situations like this before could help you. I don't know whether you're just kind of um, throwing this question out here as as like an almost gotcha. Feels like it might be Josiah, but I'm just gonna say that you're serious about this. You say if I were traumatized but wanted to die in alcohol, it makes me feel the way he wanted me to feel like that. Um, let me see if I could use another analogy. What if, what if you said, I walk around feeling like I want to die, but being mean to other people, cursing them out, cussing at them, makes, I don't feel that way. Wouldn't God want me to feel like that? So is sinning 
the only opportunity that you have to not feel that way. Like I said, I don't have enough information in, in your question. You might want to clarify it. I'll take a follow-up from you, uh, Josiah, if you want to try to redirect that question a little bit to give me a little bit more information. But I do definitely see problems with that as having this false dichotomy that it's one or the other when really there's other things that you can do. So we have a question from Annika. Annika says, question, do you think the outcome of Exodus would have been different if Moses had just obeyed God instead of trying to get out of it and then throwing Aaron into the mix? Um, so here we're talking about God's providence, Annika, and that's a difficult one to figure out. What is God doing between our free will, and we definitely believe that God gives us free will. If the Bible tells us that we can choose and commands all men everywhere to repent, and then men don't have free will, the Bible doesn't make any sense. And so we definitely have free will. And the Bible tells us we do. And, and I say that because whenever you hear someone talking about free will, us not having free will, they'll always say, the Bible teaches that we don't have free will. And it's like, really, where? You know, you just can't say, make that statement. So the Bible definitely gives us opportunities to make choices, choose you this day whom you will serve. And so we have free will. So then what does God preordain or predestine for me in my life by his, what we, what we would call his sovereignty that goes against my free will? When does my free will run into the sovereignty of God? And if God wanted to have Aaron on the scene but knew that Moses would object to going and God took him through that in order to, to get him to do what he was supposed to do, then it seems to me that that would have been what God wants. Now, can God do things differently in a different way if I make better decisions? Can God do things in a better way if I make better decisions? And I think that it could be done. So I don't know that this, this question is a hard one to look at and answer. Um, would the outcome of Exodus be different? The outcome would not, okay? They would have still have been delivered. Um, had Moses, um, you think the outcome with, of the Exodus, they would have still been delivered. Um, God would have still hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Pharaoh would have still hardened his own heart and would have been destroyed with the armies as well. Uh, had he just obeyed instead of it. So the only difference would be that Aaron wouldn't have the position that Aaron would have. And Aaron seems to cause some problems. So I'm going to give you the big maybe, sorry, when we're talking about um, hypothetical situations. If this were this way instead of that way, uh, you've got to just make an educated guess and end up saying at some point, we don't know because we just don't know hypotheticals. God definitely is working in our lives to work out certain things. But we have free will and God's gonna predestine certain parts of our lives. Ephesians 1 says, God has predestined us, God has predestined the faithful to be holy and pure before him before the foundations of the world. So God is working in my life to make me holy and pure. All right, so good to see you. And um, good to see you, uh, Jari. Ajari says, um, what is the purpose of water? People have found water on other planets and even on comets, icy bodies in the solar system. When and why did God create water? The spirit hovered over the waters. Um, so, I mean, we need water to live. 
the, the world that God created was one that had an endless supply of water. So water will continue to recirculate on the earth, even though we're entering a time of shortage right now. I always wonder, you know, how they find water on other planets. So have we found water on Mars? Um, have we found maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not up on all of those, those latest things. Um, have we landed on comets? Um, are we just kind of hypothesizing that the trail of comets is ice and, and maybe we know that for sure. And so we do have water. It does make sense that there would be water in our solar system. Why God created it so we could create life, so we could live. And he created us to need water and gave us a planet full of water. Um, so that's kind of what I would say, Jari. Um, so follow up, what makes stolen water? All right, so we have a follow up. What makes stolen water seem sweet? Uh, maybe the process of stealing it, maybe. Let's go there. We'll take a look at it. So this is Proverbs 9. And Proverbs 9, 17. Um, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, um, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Uh, Yeah, so it's just saying there is some pleasure in doing wickedness in stealing someone's water, but the depths of hell are there, so it's not worth it. In the end, it's just not worth it besides that. All right, so thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Uh, So we have a question from Donna. Uh, Good to see you, Donna. Donna says, "Uh, I recently read the book of Job. My question is, when Satan came before the throne of God, was that in heaven? Does Satan go there and and visit God sometimes? I thought he was banished forever. Thanks, Donna. I appreciate your question and good to see you. Um, So Satan is not banished from heaven yet. In the book of Revelation, Michael the archangel will take him and he will be cast out of heaven and he will come down to earth with great fury knowing that he only has a little time left. This is during the tribulation period. We're not that far away from, in, in our study of Revelation from getting to passages like this. But yes, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Remember the, the picture of, of the high priest and the angel of the Lord standing by, give him a white robe um, in the Old Testament, um, and Satan standing to accuse him, and that he seems to have access to be able to go and ask God questions now or to access up into heaven, but one day will be cast out, and that time has not happened yet. So yes, he does have access to be able to go there um, and will be cast down eventually. And as I said, you can go to Revelation and just look at just look at the fights between Michael and look up fights between Michael and Satan because you find two of them, one over the body of Moses and the other one when they when, when he's cast out of heaven. Michael, by the way, is a warrior angel, and every time we see him, he's fighting, he's battling, or when he's standing up for the nation of Israel in the very last days when God deals with Israel once again. During the time of when Jeremiah says the day's a, a devastating day, a day of Jacob's trouble, Michael the archangel stands up during that day. So that's um, that's just some some interesting stuff. 
All right. So yes, Satan did did have access to the throne room. Seems to be able to accuse the brethren um, day and night. And Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, which is awesome. Uh, and so I appreciate that, uh, Donna. And we have a question from Rakaya. Want to make sure to say your name correctly. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Um, so, re regarding Isaiah 9-6 and Isaiah 53-5, I read unbelieving Jews think we misinterpret these to refer to Jesus using for instead of the Hebrew prefix from. Isaiah 53-5, King Hezekiah is the subject, Isaiah 9-6, why? All right, so let's take a look at, um, let's take a look at Isaiah 9-6 and see where it says, for instead of from, Isaiah 9, 6. It's interesting too, Rakaya, to look at what ancient rabbis thought about a passage as well. Because modern day rabbis often look at the same Old Testament passage different than those in antiquity did. Because they weren't fighting against Jesus being the Messiah. So here, so let's see, they read, they refer to Jesus using for instead of the prefix from. All right, so let's see if we can figure that out. This is Isaiah 9, 6. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Peace. All right, so I don't see it there, but let me go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 53, 5. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, 5. And then we'll talk about um, your question here a little bit more after we look at this passage here. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So they say it's supposed to be read. I'm going to put this up on the screen. So they're saying it's supposed to be read but he was bruised, he wounded from our transgressions. He was bruised from our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Um, okay, so I, I see what they're saying and I don't know the, the qualities of the word for or from there and whether or not one can be used for another in place of another. Um, but understand, Rakaya, where they're coming from. They're coming from the place of wanting to disprove these passages, which are two of the strongest passages for Jesus being the Messiah. He was bruised for our iniquities. They're saying he was bruised from our iniquities. Uh, and and I, I don't know that that makes all that big of a difference in the statement that is there. But they're rejecting Jesus, and they've got to come up with something of these passages. Now, in Isaiah 53, King Hezekiah is the subject in Isaiah 9-6. It's Isaiah 9-6 that he would be the subject. So in prophecy, and remember, God's the one who made prophecy. So God gets to put the parameters around how it's used. So in prophecy, in the course of telling an event, God will often jump from that person into the prophecy. We see this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when he's prophesying about Satan. He starts by talking to about the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. And then he goes into talking about Satan. While he's talking about the events of this man, he puts in there the events that tell us about Satan. 
So the Bible does that, and it does that in various places. It doesn't mean that the passage isn't true because this was never true. Isaiah 9, 6 was never true of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was not, was not called mighty God or everlasting father, right? The same is true about Cyrus being Isaiah 7, 14. That it's in the birth of Cyrus that Isaiah 7, 14, unto us a child, I mean, um, for behold, I will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child and he will be called Emmanuel, that is God with us, that God's talking about Cyrus there. This is the argument anyway. And then all of a sudden there's this, this woman giving birth and it's talking about Cyrus being fulfilled. But again, God in the middle of a prophecy brings in something that can't be fulfilled in that by that person. A virgin doesn't conceive and bear a child. And so God chooses to use prophecy that way, which God can do. But here's the thing, the prophecies, end up coming true. And with the prophecies that are coming true, then it becomes something that is very powerful. And we just have to step back and go, why did God do prophecy this way? Because God was using people and men and God brought it about. But still, you have a passage that talks about a son being given to us and a son being born to us. And even though the subject of the text might be Hezekiah, it's obvious he's talking about someone else. All right? So I hope that that answers that question. If you have a follow-up on it, uh, Rakaya, I would really like to hear that. All right? So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we have a question from Kay. Kay Fox says, question, why should Satan tempt Jesus? Or why would Satan tempt Jesus? Offer him all the kingdoms below, empowering um bowed, knowing he was offering God's creation to God. Yes, he was given to, he was given the kingdoms, but why would Satan think, why would Satan think not think that? All right, so I'm not sure exactly the question you're asking, Kay. So why would Satan tempt Jesus, offering him the kingdoms of the world? Okay, so let's just take that first part of the question. Why would Satan tempt him? So we see in the temptation of Jesus, that Jesus had to face temptation even as Eve and Adam, well, Adam and Eve did in the garden. And we see that when you compare those, Eve butchered the word of God, Jesus used the word of God to overcome him. And we would have the Holy Spirit driving Jesus out into the wilderness so Jesus could be tempted, so we could learn how to overcome temptation, and we would know that Jesus was tempted in every way like we were, except without sin. And he was even tempted directly by the devil, but was able to stand against the devil by saying, the word says, the word says. Now, I'm not sure, just because I can't make sense of this, I'm sorry, Kay, and, and again, maybe it's me, I don't know, um, but I'm not sure what you're asking. So if you want to rewrite the question a little bit, then um, I would love to take more of a look at it um, as to specifically why he would ask him to bow down. I think because Jesus came to redeem mankind and was one day going to tear the scroll that would bring the kingdoms that belong to Satan, the kingdoms of the world, to, to God. And so he was trying to, to make that not happen. And he thought he could do it by questioning God the same way he questioned Eve. Remember when Satan comes to Eve, he says, did God say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? So he questions God's goodness and he, he twists things. And she said, no, God said we can eat of all the trees in the garden. 
but the tree in the midst of the garden, we can't, we can't eat it or touch it. And God, had, of course, had never said that you couldn't touch it. So to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, then turn this stone into bread. So there must have still been some doubt in Jesus as to whether or not he was really the son of God at the beginning of his ministry. And so Satan comes in planting doubts. And Satan plants doubts in our lives too. All right? So um, hopefully that's... that's um, that answers your question. Again, you can give a follow-up. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not really sure the rest of, of what that is, but it makes it makes sense that the Spirit would drive him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil because he had to go through the whole experience uh, that you and I had to go through. All right, so uh, Rakiah, uh, we have another question uh, or a follow-up. The article states Israel is being wounded from, right, that Israel is the, the suffering um, Messiah from our transgressions, etc., and suggesting we manipulate the text to fit Jesus into it. Yes, um, and I've heard that before, Rakaia, I have, that um, the suffering servant is Israel, and Israel has suffered over the years, and um, it just doesn't fit the text. When, when you come back to it, it's talking about a the suffering servant as an individual, and uh Again, they're going to say something about it, right? So, someone who's going to disbelieve is always going to approach the scriptures and come up with something to say about it. And so, you have to decide whether or not that's significant enough. Is the fact that they say they reject Jesus as their Messiah because they say Isaiah 53 was about them. And I would also like to, how long ago, how long ago did they come up with that? Because Isaiah 53 has not been read in synagogues in a long time. Why have they not read it in synagogues? Why has it been a neglected section of scripture to them? And just like there are apologists for Christianity, there are apologists for Judaism, there are apologists for, for Catholicism, and they come up with the way that they do. And just like politicians can look at things and put their own spin on it, so there are people that, that believe one thing that are going to take a passage and they're going to put their own spin on it. And you and I, Rakaya, are going to have to go to the scripture and determine, is this what they said or didn't say? Their spin, is it correct or not correct? And when I look at Isaiah 53, I think their spin that Israel is the suffering servant is not correct. Now, you're going to have to make that decision on your own. You're going to have to take a look at it and decide yourself, is, is there enough here for it? Um, but remember, man, no matter what it is, just like politically, they're going to take what's bad for them and spin it and try to make it good. And men become pretty good at this. And I'll tell you, it disheartens me when I see Christians doing the same thing where they're trying to put spin on something for what they believe, all right? So, I, yeah, I've heard that before, Wakaya. I don't think that it holds water. And I also do wonder as well what, um, what they, they taught about Isaiah 53 in antiquity. Not what they're saying about it today, that Jesus has fulfilled Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53, almost to the T. You know, if they're not going to receive Jesus as their Messiah, they've got to say something about the passage that is in their books. 
Okay, Rakaya, thank you very much. Um, so Daniel, uh, good to see you. Daniel, by the way, uh, what do you think of the strategy of Satan? And what would you read after it? So uh, first of all, I think the book by Warren Wiersbe, The Strategy of Satan, is a great book. Probably one of the best books on spiritual warfare that I've ever read. And I read it a long time ago. And we just here recently handed it out to staff, and I think we handed it out um, to um, the people that were attending our um, Connect classes. So we do two Connect classes in the beginning of the month um, where we talk about the history of our church, the different ministries we have, and then people's spiritual gifts and where they can connect with us at the church. We handed it out to them. And um, the strategy of Satan, it talks about uh, it talks about Eve being tempted and Jesus being tempted. It talks about the battlefield being our mind. And um, Warren Wiersbe was a great writer. And um, as far as reading something after it uh, in the same arena of um, the strategy of Satan, I'm not sure that I would have any particular book that I would recommend. Um, I'm not sure recommending books that I don't know that much about is a good idea. I do it from time to time, and I can't think of any um, that I would put on that same level. Maybe the screw tape letters, if you've never read it, that's C.S. Lewis. And um, I, again, it comes back to the strategies that Satan uses as he, as he writes that out. So maybe that can be helpful, Daniel. Um, I do appreciate your question, though, and I love the book and would recommend it. All right. Uh, so, um, let's see. What do we got here? Uh, we have another. If you are new here, you're just uh, this is your first time here. Good to have you. Uh, if you have a question, uh, then you can write the word question down, and then you can read it a couple times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it, and we'll answer it. Um, so Josiah says, um, and this is a follow-up to the question, if I feel like I'm going to kill myself, I'm traumatized, I feel like I want to die, and alcohol makes me feel not, not like that, wouldn't God want that for me? So he says, follow-up, I know I can't get drunk, but it makes me not suicidal. Doesn't he want me happy? All right, so uh, again, I, um, I'm just going to read this as if it's serious. I could see someone kind of poking fun um, by this question. Um, but suicidal, well, and it makes me, doesn't God want me happy? Does God want you happy, Josiah? Is that really what God wants? Is that God's greatest concern? I just want so Josiah happy. I just want Robert happy. I just want, I don't think that's what God wants from us at all. God wants, we, we, we're like in a battle, we're in a serious, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And we're in a serious battle for the kingdom of God. And God wants us involved in that battle and doing what we can do. And sometimes we'll be happy and sometimes we won't be. And sometimes it may be hard. And sometimes there might be a sacrifice. Think about all of the Christians that have given their lives for Christ over the years. There's nothing about them being happy. They gave their lives for Christ. They were tortured. They were killed for their faith. And, and it wasn't about them being happy. It was about the sacrifice that they were making for him. Now, if you are, if you are suicidal, Josiah, that I'm going to come back to, you need to talk to someone, okay? If having 
a couple of drinks makes you not suicidal. Doesn't God want you happy? I just, I just don't, the, the way that's worded makes me feel a little funny about it. Um, if you are suicidal, then you definitely got to get help, okay? So, it's not about, and if you're just trying to live your life to be happy, then it's time to find the call that God has on your life for you to give your life to Him and live for Him because it's not about being happy. It's about, but Jesus even said, you want to be my disciple? Then deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. That's what we're called to do. And we do that no matter how we feel. Now, obviously, if you are suicidal, then there's something wrong. And that's why you go see a clinical psychologist. That's why you talk to somebody who can help you. That's why you sit down with someone. Obviously, in a situation like this, where we have just a few minutes, I can't get into the great depths of what might be going on in your mind. But you need to get help, all right? So, Lord, help Josiah, whatever's going on in his life here, if he's serious and he really is suicidal, I pray that you help him and um, that he's not just using this as a way so that he can drink if, you know, that he says that he's suicidal. So, Lord, I just, just put him in your hands and pray that you would move in his life. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Josiah. So, thank you for um, being engaged with us here. Um. So, uh, one God 777 good to see you, good to have you here, says, is it wrong to feel bad for Judas? I hope he's forgiven. I don't think he is, one God 777 um, but I don't think it's wrong to feel bad for him either. Uh, he is called the son of perdition, and that's the son of waste. Just think about Judas betraying Jesus and Peter denying Jesus, and Peter repenting and being restored, and Judas taking his life instead of repenting. I don't think there was any reason that Judas could not have been forgiven had he come back and, and asked for that, but he didn't, and he ended up being the son of perdition, and I don't think he would be called the son of, of waste had, uh, had he been forgiven. Is there any scenario where Judas could be forgiven? Could we be missing it somehow? Um, I don't think so. You know, the Bible says that it's it's um, appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. And I think that Judas is facing his judgment. The fact that he was a thief, the fact that he had the um, the things that he was doing, all, all of that. I mean, again, receiving Christ and finding forgiveness can be can can be the way to eternity. And he could have been forgiven had he done that, but he chose a different way. And yeah, to feel bad for him, I don't think is is wrong. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate it. All right, just reading a couple of the comments that are here. Not sure what's going on, um, but it is good to see all of you guys here. Uh, if you have a question, then you can write the word question in front of it, write out your question, make sure it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it. And we will take your question. Uh, tonight, uh, we're gonna be talking about the nation of Israel and whether or not God replaced them with the church and why we see Israel intermingled with prophecy throughout the Bible. Not only in the book of Revelation, it talks about Israel a lot, but throughout the Bible, 
in, in places it talks about the end of the world, it talks about the nation of Israel. And if God replaced them with the church, then why does God still use Israel? And is God using Israel every time that he is God uses Israel every is he talking about the church every time that we find after that. And we're going to go through the passages that talk about God talking about them becoming desolate, re, uh, restoring the land, bringing the people back into the land, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. So we're going to talk about Israel in the last days. We're in the book of Revelation. This is the section where we see the sealing of the 144,000. So we'd love to have you join us. Uh, that's in about an hour from now. Um, we'll have the service, and um, I'll be teaching about an hour and 25 minutes or so uh, on Revelation chapter 7. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure we're able to block the way we normally can so that we can get trolls in here now. So, we might have to change. We changed um, some of our settings uh, to try to get uh, things from Facebook back again. And that may have worked, but it looks like we might have lost some control of being able to get people out who are trolls, which we definitely want to do, right? Um, and so uh, I really would like our chat to be a place where we can share and say things without somebody getting in and, uh, and trolling us. Uh, we'll see whether that's the case. We'll be able to figure that out here in a while. Um, so Kay has a follow-up to her question. So Kay says, why would the devil be so prideful to believe Jesus could be given all the glorious kingdoms below? Why offer God something that he already has? Is Satan that? Okay, is, is Satan that stupid? Uh, maybe. Um, okay, because in reality, okay, Satan has it. So I want to go over this again. We talked about this in the beginning of this, but in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve that he created them and he wanted them to, um, and in fact, let me just go ahead and pull up these passages here and we'll, we'll cover them, all right? And we'll talk about what happened here, all right? So, okay, so we're talking about the kingdoms of the world. So they were first, Adam and Eve were given power and authority over the kingdoms of the world. And we see this in Genesis 1.28. It says, um, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, which means they would rule over it, over the fish of the air and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we believe that when Adam and Eve fell, it was transferred somehow to Satan. When Satan in Luke 4, 5, and 7 says, then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that phrase there, okay? Kingdoms of the world. Uh, in a moment, and the devil said, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. We believe that happened at the fall. It was delivered from Adam and Eve. God delivered the authority of the world to Adam and Eve. Then it was delivered to Satan after the fall, for it was delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. So he's not so prideful. He, he's called the God of this world in the Bible. And he has control over them, and he's offering Jesus a shortcut. So it has nothing to do with him trying to offer something he doesn't have. Now, uh, the scroll in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that the, 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 the uh, Ancient of Days is holding in his hands on the throne, and the Lamb of God comes and takes that scroll, is the title deed to the earth that the Lamb purchased by redeeming it with his blood. 
Uh, and it says that there, if you can read it in Revelation chapter 5, um, John begins to cry when no one is found worthy to open it. And one of the 24 elders says uh, that don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, has redeemed, prevailed, and redeemed us, and redeemed to be able to open up, or prevailed to open up the scroll, and talks about redeeming. And so when all the seals are opened, and the seventh seal, the seventh trumpets come out of it, out of the seventh, seventh seal, and then when the seventh trumpet is finally blasted, that's the end of that document. And here's what it says, when the seventh angel sounded. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. So they were the kingdoms of the world under Satan's control, but now they are the kingdoms of the Lord uh, and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It will never be taken back again. So it was about the, the book of Revelation is God taking back the title deed to the earth and the kingdoms of this world who have been handed over to the God of this world, um, being able to um, have that taken from him. And Jesus did that on the cross and will open up that scroll, which is the title deed of the earth. All right, okay? So hopefully that is, and we talked about that at the beginning of this Q&A. So if you have, um, you can go back and listen to it. And if you still have a question, um, Jari, we're going to just take one uh, one question. I'll, I'll look at um, back and see if I can find a question for our next Q and A. All right, um, but uh, yeah. So um, okay, I just see you guys uh, doing a little ministering. That's all good. Um, good to do that. All right, so I'm just I'm coming to the end of it now. So um, we're uh, we're done. I've just got three minutes left. Um, Want to remind you that we have a service in about an hour. Uh, we're in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter seven, looking at the ceiling of the 144,000. Love to have you join us for that if you're here in town or if you are somewhere else. Um, also, uh, just stay close to Christ. Um, we do have just a couple of minutes left here. Um, so, yeah, so Kay says, my question about Satan, not so much Jesus and his temptation, but why he would actually offer God what is already his. So it wasn't his. Okay, and I hope that you got that from what I just said, Kay. So the kingdoms of the world were offered to Adam and Eve when they gave dominion over the earth. Somehow, we think through the fall, they were transferred to Satan. He had dominion over them. And then in Revelation 11, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of God. All right, so hopefully go back and maybe take a listen to that. So I did answer that. It was his. It was Satan's to be able to offer. All right, so um, it's good uh, to have you guys here. Good to join you. Uh, we will have another Q&A uh, this coming up Saturday, uh, Lord willing, and I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, stay close to Christ. Keep serving him and loving him and uh, pray for Josiah. I'm not really sure um, what, uh, what's going on, um, but hopefully uh, God will be moving in his life and he'll be ministered to from the time that he spent here with us. All right, so thank you guys very much. I am out and we will see you later on.